This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. At the start of 2021, there were high hopes for COVID-19 vaccines. Nearly 12 months later, millions of Americans are vaccinated, but the vaccines have become increasingly politicised, and in the meantime, Florida weathered the worst impacts of the Delta variant surge over the summer. We're going to take a closer look now at the evolution of the pandemic and how it was reported on in 2021. Abe Abariah is WMFE's health reporter. Abe, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. Absolutely. We're also joined by Veronica Zaragovia. She covers health for WLRN in Miami. Veronica, thanks as well. Thank you for having me. Well, Abe, of course, the big story of 2021 remains COVID-19. It seems like there was a lot of optimism at the start of the year around the rollout of vaccines and their impact on the pandemic. What stands out for you as you reflect on how those vaccines were deployed in Florida and kind of how things played out? Yeah, you know, I was thinking back on this. Um, the the amount of effort that was put into the vaccine distribution in the state when it first became available was really pretty staggering to see just the amount of infrastructure and using, you know, National Guard and, and these vaccine centers that were, you know, very, very well run in a mm-hmm. lot of the places. There obviously were a lot of issues as far as, you know, who was eligible and there there were hiccups as well. But it was it was a very big logistical effort to get these vaccines out. And then you had actually some criticism of the governor at the time that, you know, he was putting a lot of effort into vaccines as sort of like the the one shot solution as opposed to other mitigation efforts like masking and social mm-hmm. distancing. So it was like, well, the governor's maybe putting all his effort into vaccines. And then that sort of through line shifted as the as the year went on and it went to monoclonal antibodies. And then, you know, the vaccines kind of went out of vogue. And so it's it's really been pretty fascinating to see the evolution of just the public opinion and how the politics has sort of bled into that on mm-hmm. on just a basic public health issue. People seem fairly eager to get their hands on a vaccine right at the start of the year. And you wrote about uh, getting a vaccine yourself. Just kind of walk us through what that process is like and how that felt at, at that point in the pandemic. Yeah. So I um, in the very beginning of it, it was it was opened up to people, obviously, in the the older demographic. Mm -hmm. Um, But they allowed in Florida for people, if you had pre-existing medical conditions that a doctor deemed would qualify you. Uh, I've had a history of asthma uh, most of my life. I am a healthy weight now. But at the time, that's not always been the case for me. I, I actually spent most of my life being in the obese category by my BMI. And so my doctor looked at that and some of the other pre-existing conditions and said, you know what, we'll go ahead and get you in. So they announced that. The forms came out on the Department of Health website. I was able to get a consultation with my doctor the same day. And then it was just driving over to the site of Valencia College where they had this sort of uh, very well-run system of getting people in and out. It was almost like Disney, you mm-hmm. know, just, just line them up and, and get them through and, you know, sign your paperwork and, and fill everything out. I mean, emotionally, I definitely... I had anticipated that I was going to feel a lot of emotions by by getting it um, and even expecting it. I still wanted to cry and cried a little bit. I'm not going to lie. So <laughs> it was uh, it was definitely um, it kind of puts it in perspective for you, the amount of ways things had changed. And then, OK, we got a vaccine. So now things are, are starting to look, you know, maybe more normal. Now, in my case, I've got two children at home, one of them who is eligible now for, mm-hmm. the, for the vaccine and another one who's not yet eligible by age. So a lot of the things still are um, haven't changed dramatically. We're not acting like we're, we're fully vaccinated family and everything's good to go. But it's still definitely feeling like things are getting a little bit more back to normal. 
Veronica, you were reporting on the vaccine rollout at the start of the year. One aspect which was getting quite a bit of attention then was who was allowed to get it. Just remind us of what was happening with vaccine availability and residency requirements as well. Right. At first, aside from, say, healthcare workers, when the 65 and older residents were able to get their vaccines, you had to show proof of age. But then by late January, Florida's then Surgeon General Scott Rifkes issued a directive requiring people to be permanent or seasonal residents of the state. And that was because of reports that foreign visitors were flying in just to get their shots. And um, that is actually something that people suspect is the reason why, for instance, Miami-Dade County continues to have a pretty high vaccination rate. But at the time, it was trying, it was starting to get a lot of bad press for Florida. So then um, you had to show something like a mortgage statement or a lease or a driver's license. Even Jackson Health System here in Miami, our large public uh, hospital system, tightened its rules. And what ended up happening is that then people who were here like refugees or persons with temporary protected status who didn't have leases or properties to show were being excluded as were agriculture workers. So then a lot of um, advocates for, for people who are here, not necessarily as citizens, but here with legal status, um, couldn't get their vaccines. And so it became a very, um, you know, one scandal came out of another scandal, which in Florida, that's kind of how things go in Florida. Indeed. And then the story kind of changed a bit, right, as vaccines became more widely available. And we saw some of this happening in central Florida. But you also reported on how Miami-Dade County leaders were trying to make uh, vaccines more accessible, standing up pop-up clinics, for example. That's right. As it became more accessible in May, or as the vaccines became more accessible in May, the demand started dropping significantly. The people who had been waiting to get theirs through April, got them, and then suddenly there was just no demand. And so the idea became to bring vaccines to where people are rather than expect them to take time out of their day to go get the shot. And also knowing that people either couldn't take the time off or didn't get time off from work for for the second shot. So they ended up offering vaccinations on the sand here in Miami Beach or at the airport at Miami International Airport outside of bars. That was pretty frequent, uh, pretty common all over the country. And um, sometimes they would do things like I went to an event supported by the Divine Nine, uh, the sororities and fraternities of historically black colleges and universities to try to bring like a more festive atmosphere around getting a vaccine. And so there have been plenty of, uh, of efforts to at that point, to get demand back up. Now, of course, there's always been an element of politics tangled up in COVID-19 vaccines, but that really seems to have only amplified as the pandemic's dragged on. And recently, Veronica, you've been reporting on vaccine mandates and the push and pull between the state and federal officials over those mandates. What's the latest with the state pushback against vaccine mandates? Right. Well, there have been lawmakers in Florida headed to Tallahassee for a special legislative session in November. The sole focus of that session was to pass bills that did pass and and were signed into law by Governor DeSantis uh, that would challenge any kind of vaccination requirement at at private workplaces or, or mask mandates at schools. And so, for instance, a private employer has to allow for religious or medical exemptions 
to any vaccine requirement. And the state is trying to block in the courts a Man, a requirement from the federal government for healthcare workers at facilities that receive Medicaid and Medicare funding. So that could be hospitals and nursing homes and long-term care facilities. They need to have their two shots by January 4th. And actually, a a federal judge here decided to let that stand, even though Florida has a new new law in effect that tries to block that. But at the moment, it's blocked, actually, because another federal court in the country has put a hold. So there are all sorts of efforts, including also the state passed a law that would set up its own OSHA, which is Occupational Safety and Health, an agency that would, instead of following the federal guidelines that are requiring for for employees to get vaccinated, that the state would come up with its own agency and its own guidelines. And that, but that's going to take a long time, and it's not likely to be approved by the federal agency itself. So there are attempts to try to block vaccine requirements, but I will point out that the federal requirements do allow for regular testing, so they're not mandating vaccines if if you're willing to get a, a regular test re- tested regularly. Right, and that probably doesn't get maybe a, a lot of attention necessarily in in some aspects. Now, of course, one of the big I guess side effects of the pandemic has been its impact on business. Both of you, uh, Abe and Veronica, have been reporting on on that impact. Uh, Abe, there was a standoff between the cruise ship industry and the state of Florida. The governor threatening to sue cruise ship companies, which demanded proof of vaccination from passengers. Just remind us what was going on there. Yeah, so that plays very well with uh, the the most recent legislative session, the special session. So originally what you had was the big player was Norwegian Cruise Lines because they sail into places that, uh, into other countries that have requirements that you, you must be vaccinated. So Norwegian Cruise Lines was requiring people to be vaccinated to come on board. And so that sort of brought into this standoff. What ended up happening at this point the state's argument that you cannot require passengers to be vaccinated is on hold. Hmm. So it's basically up to the cruise line. So at this point, Norwegian, for example, they do require all their passengers to be vaccinated. Some of the other cruise lines might have some exemptions, but, you know, you can come on unvaccinated, but you can't necessarily do all the, you know, shore excursions. You may not be able to get off the ship uh, at different ports. So it's one of the, it's another one of those ones that we're still waiting for, you know, the ultimate judicial ruling on it. But at this point, it's still that push and pull between the state and the feds. If you're just joining us, my guests are WMFE health reporter Abe Abariah and WLRN health reporter Veronica Zaragovia talking about the big stories in healthcare reporting from 2021. COVID, of course, also had a big impact on schools and some of the key elements of the story involved mask mandates, how and when to keep kids home if they're infected. Abe, where do we stand now with how schools are responding to the pandemic? Yeah, so the the rules on what schools are allowed to do have changed thanks to the uh, most recent special session. So at this point, uh, schools are not allowed to have mask mandates. They are allowed, you know, children are allowed to wear masks. Um, They they can't necessarily ban masking. Um, On the other hand, too, if you have been exposed to a known COVID-19 case, but you're asymptomatic, you have no symptoms, School boards are no longer allowed to require you to stay home. So this was one of those issues where, depending on, you know, the the parent and and the situation at hand, you you had people who were 
maybe having to quarantine and stay home, you know, for weeks at a time, several times during a semester, and that they felt it was very disruptive. Um, but, you know, obviously, on the other hand, there are people who are worried about keeping the, the spread of the virus down. Mm-hmm. One of the arguments for reopening schools was that the virus doesn't have as severe an impact on children. Uh, Veronica, is there some kind of consensus now on how COVID-19 affects children? Well, while the side effects haven't been, it's not as likely for a child to develop extreme illness from COVID-19, like somebody, say, 65 and older. Experts do point out to the, the, the fact that there have been uh, children who've been intubated or who have died from COVID-19, and that they're, they're also worried about the long-term effects for children who might develop long COVID. And so um, they do feel like it's a you know it's something that needs to be taken seriously and certainly um, these are the people who are advocating for children to get vaccinated. Uh, on the other hand, um, there have been a lot of concerns about the mental health impact on children who didn't go to school when when schools were closed down, and so. Also, that has caused a lot of stress for parents who couldn't afford to leave work during that time or to hire someone to take care of their children. So it's been very difficult, and the the arguments on both sides have been, they both carry their weight. Uh, Lots of children stopped going to school as well, and so districts like Broward County, but also in Tampa and around the state, they've had their staff members going out, going door to door, looking for for children who just whose parents never or guardians never let the schools know that they had either moved on or were staying home because of the pandemic. If we think back to summer 2021, Florida became the epicenter for the COVID-19 pandemic. Abe, that had a pretty big impact on hospitals. Just walk us back through what that was like for the hospital system here in Central Florida. For Advent Health, they were on black status for a fairly long time in the summer. And what that meant was they were delaying anything that was considered a, um, you know, that that could be delayed as far as a procedure. And the reason they were doing that was, you know, the the amount of patients that they had with COVID that were requiring, you know, being on a ventilator or ICU care, high-level care like ECMO, the extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which is like you know, basically a external heart and lungs. Mm-hmm. So they, they they had a lot of constraints on that. And so they didn't want to have anything that could possibly be taking up a bed or or taking up staff. Uh, so we had that happen. There were, there were calls for uh, field hospitals to be brought up. We saw in Brevard County, for example, we did see some field hospitals sort of standing up as well because of the, the impacts over there. So it absolutely had a, a major impact. What the actual toll of that is a little bit harder to quantify, but we do know that the all-cause mortality, so if you look at the just the number of people who have died, regardless of reasoning, in states that had high levels of uh, ICU occupancy, so you had a lot of people in ICU beds, um, it, the all-cause mortality went up mm-hmm. after that. So it... it was some of the studies are showing what people have been saying, which is that, you know, it's not just about COVID. The people who are ending up in the hospital and, you know, causing major shortages of staff and resources, it's affecting other people as well. Mm-hmm. Veronica, what about the impact on hospital staff? What What was your reporting revealing there? Yeah, there were a lot of hospitals had to 
and, and have continued to need to turn to the the traveling nurse agencies that charge quite a lot for for nurses. And I spoke to a nurse with the 1199 SEIU, the largest healthcare union in the state, and she had explained that on the, the one issue is that a lot of nurses who are near retirement age have been evaluating. Um, sh- whether they should stay on and potentially get a, get infected by the coronavirus, or just suffer the from the stress of of what's going on in by you know, being short staffed, or also they say they've been working. Nurses have a team they regularly work with, and they know who to rely on during a shift. And when you have new people coming in, it's just very difficult to have that same kind of. Um, flow. And so a lot of them were retiring earlier than planned. And then also just yeah, the cost to the hospital systems to hire temporary nurses. And so the state has argued that these vaccination requirements are making these staffing shortages worse. But the 1199 did end up supporting vaccination requirements so that their nurses and patients are protected. So that continues to be you know, like a contentious issue. As it stands now, Florida's cumulative COVID cases are more than 3.7 million, 61,000 deaths. Um, I'm wondering where both of you sort of see the reporting on the story heading in 2022. Abe, where do you see the story going? I mean, obviously, the, the big question is not just Omicron, but, you know, future variants and what that kind of impact is going to have. I mean, are we going to get to a point where... Um, you know, the, we have a high enough level of vaccinations and, you know, that things kind of go back to normal? Or is this sort of where we're at right now? Or are we going to kind of be in a holding pattern sort of mm-hmm. going forward? So there, I think that's going to be the biggest question for a lot of people is, you know, trying to figure out and keep an eye on um, what happens next. Um, I think from a policy perspective, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of investments end up in public health because of this. Um you know, whether we're going to see a more robust public health system in the U.S., for, for example, for the genetic testing to look for variants. While the U.S. does do more testing than any other country, the per capita rate of testing, you know, samples for new variants is, is extremely low um, just because we have such a huge country. So you might see inter- um, impacts from there. And the other one that I'm going to continue to keep an eye on, but m- partly, you know, for, for personal reasons, but the the staff shortages and the nursing shortages, um, I don't think that's going away. Um, I think that we're in a kind of a spiral with that where the number of people who have left and the staffing shortages and the amount of money um, that is in going into contract nursing is going to feed that shortage for a longer term. Even once, even if you were to snap your fingers and COVID were to go away, the staffing shortage is not. Hmm. Uh, and I, I've actually seen some of the um, reports that come out from Moody's, they they look at the nonprofit hospital industry, for example, this is some of the first times I'm seeing the people who look at, you know, whether or not nonprofit hospitals can make can turn a profit and what that industry's outlook is going to be from a financial aspect. Those people who write those reports are saying hospitals need to invest in nursing schools. Mm-hmm. And they're saying it now because of how bad that nursing shortage is and how much that added cost is going to start hitting all these different systems. So I don't see that story going away either. Veronica, what about you? Where do you see the reporting on COVID-19 heading in 2022? 
Well, I'm really looking forward to following Abe's reporting. And to add to that, I'll, I would be looking at how it will continue to be such a hot-button political issue as we enter a gubernatorial election uh, race and year. And also, there are calls from epidemiologists like Professor Jason Salemi at the University of South Florida in Tampa, who's calling on the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, to change how they classify a fully vaccinated person. Because at this point, people 65 and older who received their two doses in January, it's just been because these vaccines, while they're extremely effective in preventing death and severe illness, their effectiveness wanes in real world uh, over time. And so he's saying that somebody who's fully vaccinated would should be someone who's received a booster shot. And so that'll be interesting to see how, um, whether that's going to change. And even the discussion around booster shots, because that made me think, well, there's been a little bit of stigma around the booster shot as this privilege for countries like the United States, when so many countries are still struggling to get their population just vaccinated with the first two rounds. So now that it is being seen as essential to preventing severe illness at this point in the pandemic, as it continues to draw, and I'll be looking at that, and also mental health stories. People are still really struggling during this pandemic. And hopefully, you know what, so, uh, happy stories too, because I, I know that a lot of this has been negative, but I'll, I'm always looking for some good stories. So maybe we'll find nurses doing better we'll see so i'll i'll try to find a silver lining where i can find one and of course in amongst all of this reporting on covid-19 veronica it was a busy year for you too because you one of the biggest stories for you this year was the surfside tragedy i just wonder how is that community coping now months after that building collapse the community continues to struggle the it's less visual now because the the memorial has been taken down and that building has been completely, all of the rubble has been completely removed. I pass by there all the time and it's just a big vacant lot. And so the focus is now on the court hearings that take place. They used to take place every week. Now they're every two weeks and there'll be a an auction in, in it's expected late February among developers who are bidding for that property. Family members try to organize press conferences to raise awareness around their desires for there to be a memorial built on on that property. But it seems like that's been really quieted as um, the judge is just saying, you know, you can't, you're going to devalue the land if you keep doing this and um, developers are going to put whatever they deem fit. And he's been trying to just get the most money possible to compensate People, So there's tension also on how the money's going to be divided. So unfortunately, it's become a bit of um, there's just a lot of tension among people who lost their apartments and then the people who lost loved ones and they're they haven't been seeing eye to eye how they're going to split the, the money. So I'm still following it, but it's less in Surfside and more in the court in Miami. And we'll be following your reporting on that as well. Well, Veronica Zaragovia covers health for WLRN in Miami. Veronica, thank you so much for your reporting and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Matt. Also joined by Abe Abariah, WMFE's health reporter. Abe, thanks as well. Absolutely. Up next, the massively complex plan to restore the Everglades made progress in 2021, but Florida's environment and wildlife faced some big challenges too. We'll continue our look back at some of the biggest stories of the year when we return.
This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The hugely complex plan to restore the Everglades made progress in 2021, but Florida's environment and wildlife faced some big challenges too. Environmental managers are now taking drastic steps to try and stop manatees dying off in massive numbers. For more, we're joined by WMFE environmental reporter Amy Green. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Manatee mortality is a big story this year. Now, you broke some news recently about supplemental feeding of manatees. What exactly is it and how is it going to help these creatures? That's right, Matt. So the wildlife agencies just announced they are going to start supplemental feedings for starving manatees in the Indian River Lagoon, specifically at the Cape Canaveral Power Plant in the Indian River Lagoon, which is a warm water habitat for manatees during the winter months, Mm -hmm. uh, which is when manatees are most vulnerable because they are sensitive to cold water. And so the wildlife agencies say they are going to provide romaine lettuce for the manatees. And this is not a decision the wildlife agencies take lightly. This is a very serious and a very significant step that the wildlife agencies are taking in response to a record die-off this year of manatees in Florida. More than 1,000 manatees have died. Mm -hmm. And the epicenter of this die-off is the Indian River Lagoon, where widespread uh, water quality problems have led to a loss of seagrass, the Mm -hmm. manatees' favorite food. And so this is a somewhat controversial decision. It's a needed decision, I think many of the advocates would say. But usually the last thing you want is for a wild animal to be dependent on humans for food. Feeding manatees without a permit for individuals still is illegal. Um, This is a very unusual step and a a very unusual response Mm -hmm. to a serious problem. Now, you've been reporting on this issue for months now. When did ecologists realize that there was a bigger-than-usual problem with uh, manatee mortality? Yeah, it became clear there was a problem in the Indian River Lagoon about this time last year when there were a series of cold snaps. And again, manatees are sensitive to cold waters. And so what can happen in the Indian River Lagoon is that when a cold snap occurs, manatees are faced with a crucial choice. They can either stay where they are and potentially starve because, again, there's been a widespread loss of seagrass in the Indian River Lagoon, or they can forage elsewhere and freeze. And so about this time last year, the agencies that are engaged in rescues and recoveries began noticing um, an uptick in the number of distressed manatees they were seeing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, during the winter months, that's when we saw the the most mortalities in this die-off this year. And that's why the wildlife agencies are working so urgently to prevent another die-off this winter. And that's one of the reasons why they're doing these supplemental feedings. Now, you've done quite a lot of reporting, Amy, on environmental restoration projects, one which hasn't received as much attention as the Everglades is the Kissimmee River. Just remind us what that project involved and why 2021 marked such an important milestone in that ecosystem. Right. So this was a very significant milestone this year in Everglades restoration. A large restoration of the Kissimmee River reached completion. And, you know, a lot of people describe Lake Okeechobee as the watery heart of the Everglades. You Mm -hmm. might describe the Kissimmee River as the backbone of the Everglades. The watershed begins in central Florida with the headwaters of the Kissimmee River. And then, of course, the Kissimmee River carries that water to Lake Okeechobee, and it flows south through the River of Grass from there. And 
a century ago, the Kissimmee River meandered very slowly um, back and forth from central Florida into Lake Okeechobee, and um, that river has been drastically altered um, to drain the peninsula and make way for development and agriculture, and that's caused a lot of environmental problems. And so, um, so what they did was basically restore those historic meanders of the Kissimmee River, and the goal is to improve water quality, um, both in the Kissimmee River and in Lake Okeechobee. Again, it's, it's a significant step forward for Everglades restoration, which is composed of dozens of restoration projects, which each on their own are massive projects, and mm-hmm. one of them is the Kissimmee River. One of the stories you reported on this year, Amy, was about the rights of nature, and this was a push by local environmental activist Chuck O'Neill. Uh, what made this attempt to strengthen environmental protection so unique? So this is just a fascinating movement by a group of environmental advocates. And what they're aiming to do here is kind of turn the environmental movement on its head in a way. And rather than, you know, putting more regulations on polluters, which um, advocates like Chuck O'Neill argue allows them to continue polluting one way or another, They want to establish legal rights for nature that effectively make it a violation of the law to Mm -hmm. pollute water bodies. Here in Orange County, by a margin of nearly 90 percent, voters approved a charter amendment implementing this rights of nature concept. And earlier this year, we saw a lawsuit Um, It was a first-of-its-kind lawsuit in the nation, actually, Mm -hmm. um, brought on behalf of five Central Florida water bodies that are incidentally tributaries of the Kissimmee River. And the lawsuit was over a proposed housing development in the fragile wetlands, and the lawsuit argued that the development violated the waterway's rights to exist and flow freely without pollution. Mm -hmm. One of the stories that uh, you reported on for NPR with Inside Climate News, Amy, was about greenhouse gas emissions from landfills. Uh, what was the takeaway from your reporting on that issue here in central Florida? So the project that we looked at with Inside Climate News was methane emissions from landfills. Methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, and many experts believe that immediate reductions in methane emissions are the best way to slowing climate change in the near future. So with Inside Climate News, um, we examined um, the amount of methane coming from landfills and found that some of the biggest polluters were right here in central Florida. Mm -hmm. But we also found that the numbers were squishy. Estimating methane emissions from a landfill is complicated. You can't really capture methane emissions from a landfill because landfills are obviously vast areas and can emit methane from various points. And so landfill operators use a series of equations and modeling to estimate those emissions. And we found that the equations and the models were inconsistent Mm -hmm. and in some cases inaccurate, including at one of the landfills here in central Florida. 
And just to follow up on this story, we just learned this month that some environmental groups are informing the EPA of plans to potentially sue over these equations and models because the environmental groups claim the models underestimate methane emissions. Mm-hmm. So a complicated story, and, and um, I think your reporting really sort of shed some light on a pretty serious issue, but one that isn't maybe so well understood. There's been some changes politically or in statewide environmental leadership. One person who stepped down was Noah Valenstein. He stepped down this year as Environmental Protection Deputy. What was his impact on uh, environmental leadership in Florida? So we're seeing a lot of changes recently in Florida on the environment when it comes to our government leaders. As you said, Noah Valenstein stepped down earlier this year. He had been doing a dual role as Secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection and Resilience Officer Mm -hmm. after the former Resilience Officer had left only six months into the role for a position in the Trump administration, and she left early in 2020. And so we now have a new secretary at the Department of Environmental Protection. We also have a new resilience officer Mm -hmm. whose name is Wes Brooks. You know, it's a transition for Florida when it comes to our government leaders on the environment. And it also comes at a time when DeSantis is, I would say, showing some change or showing some transition in his stance on some environmental problems. He, of course, has made the environment a central issue of his administration. And you and I, Matt, have talked a lot on this program about all of the money and other initiatives that he's put toward Everglades restoration. When it comes to climate change, Florida's biggest environmental problem He has done a lot less. He was pushing a bill during the legislative session this spring that put money toward resilience projects in Mm -hmm. coastal communities. But he's done less on issues like clean energy. And so this has been a, you know, kind of a point of contention for a lot of environmental advocates who point out that Florida, you know, is a state that is very uniquely vulnerable to the hotter temperatures and Mm -hmm. rising seas and more damaging hurricanes that are associated with climate change and burning fossil fuels, and yet the state doesn't have any kind of statewide clean energy plan. And so we just saw him this month kind of touting some of these resilience projects that he, you know, has been pushing for coastal communities, but at the same time avoiding words like climate change and talking about global warming as something, as he put it, something people use words like global warming, he said, as a pretext to do, in, again, in his words, left-wing things. Hmm. And he says, again, in his words, we're not going to do left-wing stuff. So, you know, I think what we're seeing is, you know, some shifting in DeSantis's comments and stance on the environment in Florida. And amongst all of this reporting on on bigger projects, there's also some reporting you've been doing on some of the wildlife in Florida. The grasshopper sparrow seems to be doing better. That's right, Matt. So some some good news to celebrate when it comes to Florida's environment and, you know, in 2021, which has been another tough year for a lot of people. The Florida grasshopper sparrow is a very critically endangered bird in North America, the most endangered bird 
in North America, and it's found only on the central Florida prairie, and that's the only place on the planet where it's found. And the grasshopper sparrow has been the focus of an urgent effort to prevent its extinction. And so what the wildlife agencies have been doing the past couple of years is breeding Florida grasshopper sparrows in captivity and releasing them on the central Florida prairie. This was another decision that was not made lightly. Mm -hmm. Um, The last thing you want to do is take critically endangered animals out of the wild so that you can breed them in captivity. But They had an opportunity to do that with some birds that were found in a flooded area without a mother, and they were rescued, and they started captive breeding the sparrows. And just within the past few years, they started reintroducing those sparrows to the central Florida prairie, and the sparrows are thriving. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when they started doing this, nobody knew how the sparrows would do. Nobody knew whether the sparrows would know how to breed in the wild and feed themselves, and they've figured it out, and they're thriving, and the wildlife agencies say that population now is beginning to stabilize, which is great news. Life finds a way, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's that's one way to look at it. Well, Amy Green is WMFE's environment reporter. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's nice talking with you. Up next, low Earth orbit is getting more crowded, and so is the International Space Station. Brendan Byrne opens up his Space Reporter's Notebook from 2021 when we return. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The U.S. resumed launching astronauts last year, and since then the pace of human launches, both NASA and space tourism, has only increased. Meanwhile, billionaire space baron Elon Musk has his sights set on destinations in deep space and robotic missions to learn more about our solar system continue. For a look back at the year in space and what's ahead for 2022, we're joined by WMFE space reporter Brendan Byrne. Thanks so much for joining me, Brendan. Happy to be here, Matt. Well, after a nearly 10-year hiatus, human launches resumed from the United States in 2020, and since then the pace has really picked up. What's been happening in 2021 when it comes to astronauts launching from the U.S.? Well, a bunch of people are leaving the planet, Matt. <laughs> it's, it's, it's finally happening uh, at a, a quick pace, uh, much like the space shuttle days. I, I hate to use the word routine, but it seems like um, astronaut launches from Florida are now consistent. We started with a uh, a splashdown in April, and then a launch of another crew, and then the same cadence happened in December. We had a launch of uh, astronauts after splashdown of, of astronauts coming back, and then and in between we had uh, the launch of four civilians. They went to space on SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule on a three-day orbital mission in a really cool space tourism flight that they really took everyone with us through a Netflix documentary and a series of podcasts they did. So. 2021 was definitely the year of human spaceflight from Florida. And Elon Musk has bigger ambitions for space, right? He's got his Starship project, which space buffs have been watching avidly. What's happening with that? Uh, They've had a few successful suborbital launches and uh, are gearing up for an orbital launch of Starship on top of this super booster that uh, we both watched uh, (laughs) them move around on, on a YouTube stream. Basically... The orbital test is the next big thing, but in 2021, uh, NASA awarded SpaceX a contract to use uh, the Starship as the landing vehicle for future lunar astronauts. So when 
NASA lands humans on the moon for the first time since the Apollo program uh, for this program called Artemis, it will be using one of these starships. And um, it'll take a series of, of in-orbit uh, refuelings, and then it will dock to what's called the Gateway, which will be put in uh, lunar orbit. Uh, and then astronauts will, will get into this vehicle, and it will take them down to the surface and then back up again. So SpaceX is really working at this incredible pace to get this vehicle put together and tested. It has come together very quickly at Boca Chica. And then Elon Musk announced, you know, a few weeks ago that it will actually be coming to, they're, they're building a pad here at the Kennedy Space Center to launch it. So, so they have two different pads, uh, which is very exciting that we'll get to see something like this fly. But even more importantly is it'll be close to, to NASA and uh, close to the Kennedy Space Center. And they'll have two different pads to launch this vehicle. So it is coming together at, at such a rapid pace. And we should see a orbital launch in either January or February is what Elon has said. And we're also hearing from, you know, folks at SpaceX that they're selling commercial cargo space on this. So there might be some commercial launches and some really big satellites on, on this vehicle. So uh, it, it seems to be the focus of SpaceX, and uh, it's going to launch very, very soon, and it's going to be very cool when it does. There were some, also some milestones in uncrewed space exploration. What are some of those milestones marked by NASA and others as you look back on 2021? Yeah, back in February, we had the uh, the Armada of Mars rovers, <laughs> or Mars robots, I should say, uh, arriving at the Red Planet, first with United Arab Emirates' first interplanetary mission, in, in orbiter, an orbiter called HOPE, um, and then the uh, NASA Perseverance rover, uh, which landed on that planet in an uh, extremely dramatic uh, and super cool fashion with the rocket-powered crane uh, and the self-guided uh, system to land it, and then China also sent... Uh, a rover and an orbiter as well. So uh, starting to collect some science uh, from all those missions. The HOPE orbiter is, is collecting some pretty valuable data around, about the, the atmosphere of Mars. Um, Perseverance rover is exploring this incredible area on uh, uh, on Mars called Jezero Crater, which is a an ancient lake bed that scientists are, are hopeful they'll find signs of, of ancient Martian life there. Um, and the rover is actually collecting samples for eventual return back to Earth. NASA and its partners with the European Space Agency are going to send another vehicle that will pick up these pieces of, of uh, Mars that Perseverance has prepared uh, and will kind of self-assemble this little rocket on, on the planet and then shoot them back up to Martian orbit and then back to Earth. So, so it's collecting some really cool science right now, searching for ancient signs of life uh, and also preparing for future sample return missions. We, we don't have uh, pristine samples of, of Mars right now. We, we have to rely on meteorites that, that bring pieces to Earth. But hopefully the Mars Perseverance rover is, is the first step in, in getting some actual pieces of Mars back to Earth, which is fascinating to think about. Closer to home, too, NASA has been working on a, a plan to knock an asteroid off its orbit. And this could have some implications for the safety of the planet. Just remind us what that project is all about. Yeah, so it's called DART, which stands for the Double Asteroid Redirect Test. And basically, this is a test in case an asteroid <laughs> does threaten to hit us. And I think it's really important that the asteroid that, that NASA is is preparing to knock out of orbit, it's not a threat to us, so we don't have to worry about that. But what it is, it's one asteroid called Didymos, and there is another piece of it that's orbiting around it. Um, it's about 6 million miles away, and NASA's DART mission is going to take this little spacecraft and it's going to knock the smaller of the of the asteroid that's orbiting the larger part. And from here on the ground, astronomers are actually going to measure just how much 
of that orbit, it knocks it off. That's important because we need to see how much it will actually do if, if this is even um, effective. Because if there is an asteroid that's threatening us, we can, if we get to it early enough, knock it out of its orbit so that it's not a threat to us here on Earth. So instead of blowing it up like we've seen in, in the movie, you know, with, with Bruce Willis and, and Armageddon, this is a, a far safer way to prevent us from an eventual asteroid strike. So uh, in about 10 months, it will, it will conduct this test at Didymos, and uh, all eyes are, are going to be on it uh, the fate of our planet uh, <laughs> is in the hands of DART right now. Speaking of exploration, just over a year ago, Arecibo Observatory collapsed, and that sent shockwaves through not just the uh, scientific community in Puerto Rico but beyond because it was such an important and, and large telescope and there was a lot of science that was done based on observations from that site. I wonder what the latest is. Is, is this now basically a historic site or is there still a possibility that it could be restored in some fashion there could be some future science being done from that particular site in Puerto Rico. So the, the thing about Arecibo is it's not just that particular dish that that collapsed. There's there's other observatories there and they are continuing to collect data and Arecibo has had this kind of archive of data that they, you know, that scientists and astronomers are still going through. I think, you know, the last I talked to some folks at Arecibo and, and folks in the in the astronomy community is they don't just want to rebuild it for the sake of rebuilding it, right? Um, Arecibo was decades old. There is now an opportunity to build something better and to figure out what role it will play in astronomy at large. Uh, but again, it, it'll be an issue of financing and trying to figure out how much how much money uh, folks are willing to spend uh, to bring it back. But right now, I think that they're still kind of figuring out what will be the successor of Arecibo rather than just rebuild it for the sake of rebuilding. There was a scare on the International Space Station recently after what appeared to be debris from a Russian anti-satellite test uh, came fairly close to the station, or there was the threat of that at least. So what's the status of the U.S.-Russia relationship when it comes to space and space policy, and what does that particular incident tell you about how that relationship is going? This has been a really interesting story. When it when it first came out, the U.S. pretty much condemned it. Russia downplayed the threat to what was happening. But, I mean, this anti-satellite missile test created thousands of pieces of debris, and blowing things up in space is not the best idea. Uh, just because you can't control these pieces of debris, and they're moving at these kind of almost baffling speeds, you know, some 15,000 miles per hour. They're flying through orbit. So something very, very small can be very, very damaging to not just the International Space Station. Yes, I mean, that was definitely a concern. But if a piece of debris hit one of our communication satellites, if it hit one of our GPS satellites, um, it could be very, very damaging, and then it would create more debris. Um, so, so this whole thing has really jump-started the talk about mitigating space debris and dealing with space traffic at, at a much more global level. What was really interesting uh, to a lot of space observers, and, and especially myself, was at the National Space Council, they talked about this. Now, the National Space Council is kind of like a policy steering uh, committee. It's built, it, it's made up a bunch of cabinet members, and it's chaired by Vice President Kamala Harris. And, and one of the primary topics was 
space debris and these Russian ASAT tests. And the Secretary of Defense stood up at this meeting and says, we need to put an end to these ASAT tests, these anti-satellite uh, uh, test demonstrations. And usually something like that, especially from the Department of Defense or from even the U.S., we want to reserve that capability for our own weapons development. But the Secretary of Defense came out and said, no, 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 we need to get rid of this practice and not do this and, and, and be better stewards of space. And so that goes to show you just, at least from the Department of Defense, uh, how important of an issue this is. Uh, we still haven't heard anything from the Biden administration or, or Vice President Harris saying, you know, condemning these tests and saying that we're going to stop it. But if you see the, the folks in, in the Defense Department saying we need to stop this, then you know that this is a very serious issue. Brendan, what's ahead for 2022? Where do you see your reporting going next year? Well, there's going to be a lot more launches, that's for sure. Um, we've got SpaceX crew missions for, for NASA will continue. Um, SpaceX will also send a crew of four regular people to the International Space Station, private citizens that paid for a trip um, to go to the International Space Station and come back. We're also going to see some some new vehicles uh, flying. Uh, there's a small launch company called Astra is planning to fly orbital rockets from Cape Canaveral. There's Relativity Space. This is a company that is 3D printing their rockets. Um, they also have space at the Cape uh, to launch. They plan to launch next year as well. So here in Florida, it's, it's going to be lots and lots of rockets and a lot more people on top of those rockets, which I think is really cool. Elsewhere, we'll have the James Webb Space Telescope launching right now. It looks like at the end of December. Uh, fingers crossed that, that nothing else happens there, but that will be starting to conduct its science in 2022. This is a $10 billion telescope, the most expensive thing I think we've ever built and put in space that is going to see deeper and farther into our universal past and look at it through a wavelength of the infrared to be able to see. We'll, we'll be able to see exoplanets and, and see the, the early beginnings of our universe. It's just going to have some incredible science and incredible images. Um, and then NASA gave contracts to three different companies to build private space stations. So those could be coming together in 2022 and uh, getting into space soon after that to help, you know, alleviate some of the the pressure when the International Space Station uh, eventually retires at the end of this decade. So really, really lots of cool stuff happening, but uh, I'm most excited about more people leaving this planet uh, from right here in our backyard. Brendan Byrne is WMFE Space Reporter. Thanks so much for your time, Brendan. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Matt. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find archived shows at wmfe.org intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. <laughs>